Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. I am not your host, as you've probably already guessed by the voice. This is your producer, Christiana Kimmick, again. Ashley still has the week off. She's rounding out that Thanksgiving week. Hope that you guys had a wonderful one as well if you're listening right after the the week has ended. Um, But good news, Ashley did record this interview prior to Thanksgiving. And so even though you're hearing my voice right now, you will be hearing her lovely voice with our guest coming up in just a moment. Today's guest that I get to introduce, which I'm so excited because I never get to do these, is Danielle Gregorich. Danielle is an Arizona native, an Air Force wife, and she's a sober mom of two amazing kids. She's a multiple suicide attempt survivor, a kidney cancer survivor, and if you can tell by the title, she is a stroke survivor. This is an amazing story, you guys. She's a living miracle. Danielle also started writing about her sobriety daily. She wrote in this, she was writing like while she was recovering from her stroke and she couldn't talk. That's a a snippet from the story. She wrote raw and authentically about her struggles with sobriety, marriage, and motherhood. Writing quickly became therapeutic and played a crucial role in her first years of sobriety. Her writing culminated in her first book, Stroke of Sobriety, The Essential Daily Guide. Her book is available for purchase exclusively on Amazon, and we will link that in the show notes. Today, Danielle is an active member in the recovery community, and she works at a treatment center. She's a public speaker sharing her experience, strength, and hope anytime she gets the opportunity to do so. Oh my goodness. Ashley and I loved this guest, you guys. And you'll hear she and Ashley have quite a few laughs throughout the interview and as she's sharing her story. And I think you're going to find it not only entertaining, but completely inspiring. Her story just blew our minds, and we knew we had to get her on the podcast as soon as we heard it. So I will not delay any longer, and don't you worry, Ashley is coming back this week, and we've got some exciting new episodes coming up as well. But now, I leave you with episode 85, Danielle Gregorich. Let's do this. Danielle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor. I'm so excited. I can't remember exactly how I came across your story. I know it was on Instagram or some sort of social media, but it was, I mean, I was blown away and such an incredible story combining your, your, your health journey and, uh, your, (laughs) your stroke and all the things that you went through. And I, I was just like, this is, I have to talk to this woman. Oh, that's so cool. That's such an honor. It's, uh, you know, even like going through it, when I tell my story, I can't even believe the shit that I've been through. Like, I don't even know how I have managed to stay alive a of all. And like, have a positive attitude. Like what? That's so weird. No, it's cra- I mean, it's crazy. And I get that too, where you're just like, I think part of it is that it's such a blur for us that, you know, like we're intoxicated, right? So it's like, or 
or you're had a stroke and in a coma. So like for us, it's like a whole different experience because it, like it feel it, your dream state, right? And then you come out of it and you talk about it and you're like, oh my God, like you weren't a hundred percent there. So it's a very, you're kind of like looking back at it. Well, I just figure, you know, I started drinking in seventh grade and I drank from seventh grade until I was 34 years old. So like over two decades of my right. life was a drunken blur. Right. right. And like, so it's my marriage, I was drunk for an entire decade of it. Like I didn't know who I was when I got sober. My husband didn't know who I was. And it's just like, I don't know what to do. Who am I? Like I'm yeah. a grown woman. I'm like a mom. I'm a wife. And I'm just like... Who's, where's the adult? Can the adult come in and cook food and stuff? Cause I can't do this. (laughs) Oh God, girl, I'm sober and I still feel that way. I'm like, right. (laughs) I, I legitimately am like my kids. And I realize what's, what's amazing. I don't know if you have this. Like, I realize like I'm the fucking grown up in the house. Like I'm, I look at my kids and I'm like, oh, you, you, I'm your grown. Like you think I know what's up. You think I know what's going on, you know? And it's pretty, pretty terrifying pretty, pretty terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And the fact of the matter is I didn't want to be a mom simply because I did not feel qualified to take care of anybody. I was okay with like doing a dog. Like I had a little French bulldog, like, okay, whatever. I can shove her in a cage and lock her and when she bothers me, but like this human, I'm going to have to be responsible for at least 18 years. That's a, that's a lot of commitment. Yeah. Like, what? And and you just, yeah. And you can't like just get divorced from parenting. Like even nope. if you're married, like, okay, bing, bang, bong, it's not working, but you like cannot step back and be like, I'm not going to do this anymore. Like, <laughs> you know, this isn't working out. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, there's so many times I'm like, oh shit, I totally missed like the opportunity to drop my kids off at like this safe haven at like the fire department. Like yeah. how can I drop like a window where you can go. I know where the fire station I've, I've texted my parents. I'm the, you know, saying things like that. I'm like, Hey, uh, so it looks like you're going to be raising my children and, and, um, you know, thanks so much. You're going to be uh, grandparents that raise their uh, kids. Right. Uh, it's brutal. You are currently, so did you, you grew up in Phoenix or in Scottsdale? I yeah. I, so I grew up in Scottsdale and then we moved to a suburb of Phoenix. It's called Ahwatukee. It's like this posh little affluent sort of pocket in Phoenix. And, uh, it's, uh, it was like, kind of Stepford Wife's-ish, okay. like Pleasantville, yeah. and, uh, but like there were so many drugs and so many alcoholics and like, but it was like not discussed because we have to pretend that everything is fine because we live in this amazing neighborhood and uh, that, that did not work out well for anybody at all. And uh, it's so weird too, because like now I look back at like the m- people who I still am in contact with in high school. And there's so many people who are in recovery, so many people, but on the flip side, you know, we've lost so many people to overdoses, like even right before, like in high school, we lost people. And, um, it's just baffling to me that, you know, a lot of the teachers and the principals, like they turned a blind eye because they knew that we were high as hell in class, but 
I think a lot of the parents had that kind of pull and they had that esteem. And so like they couldn't, you know, say, oh, Jimmy's high. And no, it was like, whatever, just get through this year and bing, bing, bong, goodbye. It's, uh, yeah, it's just so crazy. And so like going to meetings in Arizona where I grew up, my biggest fear was seeing somebody that I knew. Like I would have been so devastated. Which is so crazy. So this is what I always say. So I, I had a, I had a very close girlfriend. <laughs> this is just like classic recovery. I had a very close girlfriend who was a professional dominatrix. Okay. In Los Angeles. Very, very interesting life. And she, I would sometimes go to these BDSM clubs to like see her or check it out. I was, you know, but that's not my thing. I, I don't want anyone to hit me. Um, yeah, no. but, <laughs> I'm like, and I, I don't, you know, so whatever, yeah, but, right. but like I would go and it was, you know, so you dress up and it was fun and I would see my girlfriend and whatever. And I would always say, uh, one time I took my then boyfriend, now husband, and he was like, what if someone sees us here? They're going to think like we're into this stuff. And I was right. like, honey, let me tell you something. If someone is seeing, if someone's here and they see us, they're here too. And it's kind of the same. I always say it's the same thing with AA. It's like, listen, if you see me here, that means you're an alcoholic too. So you're as concerned about me seeing you as I am about being seen. So I think we're, you know, it's like you're, you're all safe. Everybody's hands are dirty in the situation. But I think like when you're brand new, you still have, you're holding that shame, you're holding that guilt and like you have gotten to the point where like you've surrendered and like you have to admit defeat. And like, for me personally, you don't want like anyone I, else. No, dude. I want to like keep people at arm's length because if you knew something about me, then I figured you could use it against me. Right. So right. like I didn't tell anybody who I was, what I was about. I kept everything at like this, but yep. nobody could get in at all. And, yep. and it worked for me and, until it didn't. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. But uh-huh. you're so your mom is an alcoholic and she was in and out of the rooms a lot. What did that look like with mom? So my very first memory of her, and I don't even think she knows this to be honest. So I remember her being basically taken from out of my arms and ripped to re- like out of rehab. They, somebody came into our home when we were living in Scottsdale and they took her and they took her to rehab. And I remember visiting her in rehab and then, uh, she would get, you know, pulled together some time of sobriety. And I remember like hanging out with the people were in the meetings and, and all of that. And so, but you know, for her, she was incapable of stepping into her truth and owning the fact that she's a, she's a recovering alcoholic. She can no longer drink and she's going to do this sobriety deal. It was this shameful, dirty secret. And so we were supposed to carry that as like a secret. You cannot disclose this period point blank. And so I didn't even realize the fact that I was carrying around her trauma, her shame, all of her guilt. And so I took that on as my own and, you know, being an empath, like I absorbed all of that. And I remember thinking like the majority of my life, like, why am I so f***ed up? Why do I feel this turmoil inside? Because, you know, on the outside, 
I didn't really have a bad childhood. You know, I, I grew up with two parents and my dad was, ex, you know, extremely successful businessman. And I, and to my knowledge, I haven't been molested. I hadn't been raped. I hadn't, none of these things that you think you need to have to drink the way that I drink. And like, but it pissed me off because I didn't understand why I felt the way that I felt because I didn't have any reason to. And that really pissed me off. And I think for the majority of my drinking, it's, you know, I struggled with that because, you know, when you don't have any sort of excuse, nobody is going to give you any sort of pity. Nobody is going to even think that you need help. And so my disease kept me sick for, you know, over two decades of my life because I couldn't properly explain how miserable and how desperate I felt. And so pouring a depressant upon depression is like a perfect shitstorm. For sure. It, uh, it, it was so frustrating. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting because, you know, I want to say two things about that. And I think it's a really important topic that you bring up, which is like this idea that something has to happen or we have to have a bad childhood or whatever. And I think there's there's a couple things. Number one, you had an alcoholic mom, which is very traumatic. So you actually did have stuff like that's actually a really big deal. Having, you know, an adult child of an alcoholic, they have their whole own category. It's It's a very serious thing, right? So there is that. But I will tell you, as someone who did have not this, like I had a good childhood, but I had the stuff that you could look at the molestation, all that stuff, right? What was interesting about having that stuff is, yes, I have that stuff. But what I always felt was that was the stuff that everybody looked at and went, this is why. But I didn't feel like that was why. Like I, like I felt like, yeah, like I felt like I, I felt like it was like, like that was, I mean, it didn't help. But it just didn't feel like that was the reason, like why this all happened. Like as as far as I felt and the internal stuff that I felt, it didn't feel like the reason. And what I uncovered in therapy was that there were many things that happened along the way that I experienced as very traumatic that wouldn't outside have like on the outside looked like traumatic. And then there were other things that happened in my life that look very traumatic or like sound very traumatic. I'd be like, you know, the molestation where like the problem with what happened was, you know, rewiring in the brain, my age, but I didn't leave feeling totally, it was more confused. It was more what it did long-term, but I didn't, it wasn't like a straight up trauma. There were situations in my life that were straight up traumas that didn't look like that. And so I always right. felt like we have, I had this thing, right? The thing you wanted, right? That was right. like, okay, yeah. that's why, that's mm-hmm. why. But it didn't feel like that was why. And so I was always very frustrated that it was like, oh, okay, well, that's why she's an alcoholic. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. And, and, and so it's, it's just interesting to hear, like, I get it. I, I get what you're saying. And, and I'm not sure that it always is, you know, the reason I think also like there's this component component that we're born with, you know, we born feeling like, you know, we were born with our skin too tight. We were born uncomfortable. We were born angry. Oh yeah. I you think, you know, for, and I'm, I'm a really huge believer of, um, generational trauma that Intergen- yep, intergenerational it, trauma. And so the other thing is, is in utero trauma. So, 
my mother had a, a pretty similar experience to myself in regards to finding out that she was pregnant and that fear and not feeling qualified and all of that. So I basically was swimming around in that cortisol and that stress component and all of that. And so I think that has a huge effect. I don't know if you have looked into, so they basically had followed these women who were pregnant when September 11th happened and who were in that area. And all of those children have come out with PTSD and they just have all of this stuff, but they didn't personally experience this and you don't have to experience this. And like, that's what I'm so grateful for you know, through therapy and through working the steps and all of that, like I've learned that and I've accepted the fact that we don't need this. What we feel and what we believe, that's our truth. And nobody can discount the fact that what we feel and our feelings are valid, period, point blank. They might not be true and honest and real, but we cannot discount the way that we feel, period. That's that's our truth. I don't even think it's like the, our feelings aren't true. Like I think it's, I, so first of all, I love the study that you're talking about. And, and here's the thing about that feelings, feelings, like when we look at, when we look at neuroscience, right, they trigger chemicals, right? They trigger chemicals you know, you, you run for endorphins, you, you stress, you have cortisol, they trigger and, and they trigger disease. Mm. So I think that I it's that. really, yeah, it's really reasonable to see how this could could affect you know a, a pregnancy and all the chemicals that are going into so i i think it's i i really think that we we're st- as a as a species we still think that emotions are like silly and most people still think you know like we put emotions in this category of like yeah yeah as opposed to no your emotions are, are are fire alarms they're signals they're things that they're they're telling you something's on fire it's not it's not nothing. Like, it's not like, oh, I'm just going to pretend this isn't here. No, your body's flooded with the chemical. Exactly. So what's so fascinating about that with the stroke that I suffered, I found out that I had had a heart condition my entire life. And so anytime I would go to a therapist or a psychologist or psychiatrist, they basically said, well, you're anxious. Here's a pill. This is going to fix you. So they flooded me with pills and pills and pills. At what age? What what age did that start? Seventh grade. I went or eighth grade. I went to my first um, inpatient in eighth grade. And so it's, it's shocking to me because I've always had a really, really high has, high um, resting heart rate. It was like 120 beats per minute. That was my normal. Oh my and god! People just the doctors basically just said, you know, you're you're a passionate and excitable human, and so <laughs> you just need to chill, like calm down. I was like, yeah. listen, dude, if I could do it and I could just calm down, I yeah. wouldn't be here, bitch. <laughs> it's like so <laughs> frustrating. But I learned through the stroke that I had been living in my brainstem for my entire life. And actually drinking helped my heart rate slow down. So drinking, I truly believe with all my heart that if I would not have drank the way that I had drank, I would have suffered a stroke way earlier in life, way earlier. That makes sense. As soon as I got sober, so I was in March of 2018 
I suffered a massive stroke in June of 2018. So I think my body was like, dude, what are you doing? Like this alcohol is helping you. Why are, why are you stopping this? This is working. And it was such a mind fuck because, you know, drinking was my solution to everything and it worked until yeah. it didn't. That's and the that- problem. That's the thing. That's, I mean, that's the, that's the thing about alcohol. You know, alcohol is a, you know, chemically a solution and it was our solution. And I do think that, that alcohol and drugs got me through my childhood, got me through feelings of wanting to kill myself, getting, got me through feelings for me. You know, there's a lot of people like want to kill themselves for me. It was more often wanting to kill other people, but you know, it was like got me through all these things. And, and I think, you know, it sounds like for you, that was very, that was very (laughs) even medically true. And also being, I think that early on dismissal of you're like, yeah, I have a, you know, like this is a problem. I'm going to throw a pill at you and be like, oh, you're just like that chill out. You know, there's nothing worse than having like clinical anxiety and being told to chill out. It's like, you don't understand. I would do anything to chill out. I'm trying everything I can to chill out. I'm, I'm poisoning myself to chill out. Like, trust me, I, I, I want what you want. I want to just get into a little bit of your story. So first of all, we have something in common, which is that, uh, I was a very, I was very fond of Popov. I regularly <laughs> drank Popov. I don't so know a lot. It's so gross. And I even to the point where like oh. I pop up with my drink, uh, you know, until, until Nobody I had like, drinks that so gross. that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I saw this and I was like, this is amazing. We can be friends now. So my boyfriend to the point where this is, this is, I had a birthday and my boyfriend put pop up a big ass bottle, pop up, put a bow on it and an eight ball. And that was my birthday gift. And let me tell you, I was like, I want to, why marry didn't you him. marry him? Are you kidding? I was like, Oh my God, you like Prince you Charming. Oh I God. felt like fucking Cinderella. Okay. <laughs> was so amazing. Oh my so, God. That's so yeah. Good. Yeah. I mean, I think some girls, you know, they want their really nice Quavassier, whatever, but yeah. not this girl. Give me uh-uh. some pop. Give me a big ass. Right. Yeah, she so, got the job done. Well, it's so weird. So like that was my very first drink in seventh grade. Right. And so like I, that was not an enjoyable experience whatsoever. I passed out in a gated neighborhood and like, it was so embarrassing. And And then, so I didn't really mess around with hard alcohol after that. Like anytime I would get like kind of sort of drunk, I would do shots and stuff. But I, I'm super grateful that I realized at a really, really early age that if I was going to mess with hard alcohol, I was going to die. So like I was a total beer girl. I would drink beer. Like I would drink like a 24 pack. Like, yeah, I was going to say you're one of the people who put, I like that to me is next level insane. I'm like, go, you know, there's like a way faster way to like get to that. People, I like, I, I like when I was, che- you know, checking people and I was doing assessments for people and, and getting, helping people get into rehab, I would come across it's like 24 pack a day, 224. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. a job. Like that's like eating eight pizzas. Oh, totally what, like, why not just Dude, get yourself was, like you, a shot of vodka and you are there. It was such a full-time job though. It, you know, especially at the end of my drinking, because 
I couldn't keep that first drink down. Like the moment my eyes were open, I, I had to have a drink in my system and like, Oh my God, throwing up that first drink, like every single morning, it drove me so crazy. So I'm just like, dude, so you'd wait up here so I can function. Oh yeah. You'd wake up and you'd take a drink and then vomit it and then take another. Oh yeah. And especially at the very end, um, because I was taking the Percocets along with alcohol. So like I would puke up the, the beer or like the Mike's hard lemonade. And I would have to like go and dig the pain pill out of my puke and then try and get it down again. Like it was just like a endless process. Oh my God. It was so frustrating. It's amazing. That's, it's, that's pure, pure alcoholism. Like I, I, I appreciate your alcoholism. That is pure alcoholism. Like I'm going to vomit. I'm going to go find my pill. Oh, I mean, that's just classic. Pull my pill out, take that shit. It is. I mean, the, the thing about alcoholism, the way you had, you know, it's like, it's a very clear motive. Like the motive is to get as messed up as humanly possible at any. And so there's no barriers to like, oh, that's gross. Oh, I'm not doing that. Like, oh, but I throw it up. Oh, but any of those things like you over, it's like, you know, when you're a smoker and like you get the flu and you're like, yeah, I'm smoking through the flu or right? I'm smoking through bronchitis. Like there's no choice here. It's Ugh. not an option. It's just no. happening. So it's just madness. Your parents just, so you graduate high school, your parents kick you out, you move to New Mexico to be with a boyfriend. Ex-boyfriend, ex. Oh, oh, to be with the ex, right, naturally, okay. And then you you start selling manufactured homes for a living. You get a sales job. And tell me about your high-speed car chase while you're uh, selling manufactured homes. So, uh, you missed a little part in it. So I ended up realizing that that ex-boyfriend was an ex-boyfriend for a very good oh, reason. reason. Yeah. And yeah. I so, hate that yeah. So I, I met these dudes who lived in a frat house and they said, well, you can come live with us. We'll just you for free and just stay in this room. And I was like, Oh, game on. And so I ended up, you didn't have to have sex with them. No. And still to this day, my husband does not believe that whatsoever. Like, I, I mean, it's hard to believe honestly, I know. but I, I, I believe you. Were, these, I'm telling you, these men like took care of me so amazingly well. It was just, it, we had so much fun, but anyways, so we ended up going to this club. It was called rock and rodeo. And, uh, I had a fake ID obviously. And I was 18 at the time. And Somebody must have told a bouncer or the security guard, like, this girl's underage, blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, right? And so they ended up saying, you need to leave. And I was like, uh, okay. So I sat in my car because I had drove a bunch of people there, and I didn't have any friends. Like, I can't leave these people stranded. So I was just going to sit in my car and wait till they got out. And so in the middle of, like, sitting in the car, I heard, like, a knock on my car window, and I looked up, and it was a cop. And I was like, oh, shit, this is a problem. So I decided to... Why, why was it a problem? Well, because just- I, I was, like, out of my mind, and I had but a... You weren't driving. No, I was driving. Oh, oh, you were yeah. actually... Okay, okay. I, okay. I, thought, I thought you were parked. I thought you were parked. 
no, no, no. I was in my car in the driver's seat. I think I had it. Yeah, I had it on. And so I was like, oh, shit. So I don't know why or how I was just like, go, buddy, go. So like I threw my car in reverse and like I took off in my 1988 Honda Accord with one headlight. Um, I don't. <laughs> yeah, girl. If, yeah. Do not get in a high speed car chase with a Honda Accord ever. Oh, so good. So. I ended up the, the reason the car chases ended was because I slammed into a telephone pole and my face went through the windshield. And so as soon as I hit, I was like, Oh shit. And I was still in that fight or flight mode. So like I threw my car in reverse, there was a cop standing behind me unbeknownst to me and I hit him. And then they, I think they just drug me out of the car. I don't recall any of this. And so I woke up in jail and I was like, Oh fuck like this what I, that's the first time I'd ever been in jail that's the first time I'd ever been in really serious trouble and it was really serious like I yeah. had yeah. oh like 18 charges that I was facing um like man like vehi- vehicular manslaughter like all of this and I was like oh my god did you I, what happened to the cop he was fine. I think I just like ran over his toe or something. So I was like, this, this is horrible. And like, I didn't have any knowledge of how to go about this. I, my, I wasn't talking to my parents and I sure as hell wasn't going to call them because I wasn't going to admit defeat. I wasn't going to say that I needed their help. I wasn't going to do shit. And so the boss at the time that um, the manufactured homes that I was working with, he hired me a lawyer and he's like, look, girl, you never, ever, ever admit that you're guilty, no matter how guilty you are. And so he bought this, um, he paid for this really, really amazing lawyer and uh, come to find out I had been roofied. So she got my blood work and I had been roofied. So and so New Mexico, wow. Las Cruces, New Mexico is super duper close to Juarez. Yeah, um, Mexico. Yeah, yeah. And so like, I don't even know what would have happened if I would not have ended up in jail, if none of that would have happened. So like, that was my very first experience with God. Cause I didn't hold go on. up. Go ahead. Holy shit. So hold on. So wait a minute. You, how did this lawyer know to get your blood work? Like what made her, what made her think of to do like, what made her think that you, she should get your blood work? The only thing that I can figure that she, I think she said that there was something messed up with the case. And so she went, and so like, I didn't have any knowledge of what had happened. Like, I just knew I had got this one drink and then this high ah, school chase happened. Okay. So you said, okay, so you yeah. got the one, you, you told her, oh, I got yeah. the one drink. Okay. Yeah. So she was like, you're, that doesn't make sense. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, it was so amazing to me because like I was able to meet one-on-one with the judge in the judge's chambers and have like this heartfelt conversation. He had so much compassion for me. Wow. And um, the only thing I had to do, I had to do like a couple alcohol classes and I think I yeah, paid yeah. like $300 in fines. Like that doesn't happen. Period point. I point. mean, that's, and not only, not only, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have chills. Sorry. That's just like nuts. So you, not only were you, cause there's so many things about that. Like you were removed from, from the roofie situation. Like you were roofied and, and then someone said you're, you know, like you got out of there and that is really, really incredible. It's just, you know, still to this day. And it's super. So when all that whole George Floyd 
situation happened, I felt such tremendous survivor's guilt. Like, and I don't even know if that's a thing, but I just felt like if I would have been like a different color and not this super duper cute blonde white girl, like my ass would still be sitting in jail. There's no doubts about it. Oh, no, hundred percent. Because you were taken in by the frat boys. Mm-hmm. Who, oh yeah, and you were taken, and then you, the manufactured your boss hired you a lawyer. I mean, that's inc- a good lawyer. Oh I, yeah, I, that's incredible. I mean, and and you didn't have to have sex with any of these people <laughs> for it. That, that's right. I mean, Jesus, like that's yeah. just that's just incredible. Yeah, and you're right. You're right. I mean, I. I you know, I thought the same thing around that time, you know, the George Floyd stuff, which was that my interactions with the police, you know, when, when, you know, I don't have a record, uh, but I, I, because it was completely expunged, I basically got what's called like a, the golden ticket. Um, but the reason I got that and we talk, and like, I talk about this, which is the joke was the best justice money can buy. And that was what was, and people would talk about that. And so I remember going to court dressed in a suit as a teenager. And there were all these, uh, and my, you know, my lawyer, my, my dad, and, and then there were these other kids there who were same age. No one's with them. They have a county lawyer. They're a different color than I am. And they're dressed. And it's like, they, I probably did way worse stuff. I was looking at way worse stuff you know, best justice money can buy. And so, you know, the fact that this woman thought to um, get your blood work, you know, it's, yeah, you're right. Survivor's guilt. It's real. It's real. And you know, as a person who, you know, did things in their addiction that caused them to get into, you know, to, to interact with law enforcement, we do know that we're treated differently. Absolutely. It's just baffling to me because like I said, I still should be sitting in jail. And this happened back in what, 2002? I was facing a large amount of time to to be sitting in jail. And, um, well, and anything. Truth be told, I, I will say this too also, being you were roofied, so you shouldn't have been held accountable. Like, like there's situations where yes, but also you also you were drugged by someone, you know, and I I I think that it's a reasonable in this case, I don't think it was totally like I was this horrible human. Yeah, yeah. I I think yeah, yeah I think that was, you know, like who you know, you whatever. So yeah. But so then you so you left manufacturing and became a flight attendant after that? Yeah. So I decided after that whole debacle happened, I was like, I'm I'm getting the hell out of New Mexico. This is not the place that I need to be. And so um and then my parents were like, I started talking to them and they were like, You need to get a job that has health insurance because selling manufactured homes doesn't have shit. So I ended up getting a job as a flight attendant and I lived in Atlanta and it was fun-ish, and uh, I ended up getting fired from the first airline that I had worked for because I had missed a call out because I think they called me on my 21st birthday, and I was passed out, so obviously, and so I ended up getting another job with another airline and moved back to Arizona, and uh, I ended up getting fired from that one because I had falsified a doctor's note because I'd been taking Percocets for endometriosis and like legitimately I needed them. I was in so much pain and, uh, but I got hooked on them quick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I realized very soon that 
they helped me drink the way that I wanted to drink. I didn't get sloppy anymore because I could pop a Percocet and I would perk up and I could just do whatever I needed to do. But I, uh, then at that time, like I just didn't care about anything anymore. Like I just wanted to take Percocets and party and it was fine. But yeah, so I got fired from that one. And then you, you meet your husband at a HR, we were a, a job in HR. You meet your husband at a dinner and you get pregnant. Yes, I did. And I was told that I could not have kids. And I Because of the endometriosis? Yeah, it was so bad. I had so much scar tissue on it. And so I was elated that I could not have kids. I could be a floozy. I could do whatever I wanted to do. And I wasn't going to get pregnant. And I wasn't going to be responsible for anybody. And so... Be a floozy. (laughs) I just was like, whatever. I just I love I it. truly like with all of my heart, didn't believe I could have kids. And I had multiple miscarriages before that. And so it confirmed that I couldn't do it. And so um, I found out I was pregnant when I was 16 weeks. And the only reason I even like went to considered I might be pregnant is because I didn't have abs anymore. And I was like, I'm working out at the gym. Like, I don't have abs. Like, listen, Britney Spears, she has her body right. I should have my body right. And, uh, I was so disappointed. And so, yeah, I I peed on that stick and it said pregnant. And I was devastated. Like, I was so mad. And my son was born at 32 weeks. So I had like a 16 week pregnancy. And so like, I hadn't even like wrapped my head around the fact yeah, that yeah, yeah. I'm going to be a mom. Yeah. And, uh, I was on bed rest for like the majority of it. It was just so like, oh, it was so God. traumatic. There was yeah. no beauty in it. It was just yeah. miserable. And so when my son was born, he was born not breathing and he was basically born like dead. And the first thought that I had when I heard him come out and he wasn't crying. I was so happy. Like I figured God had worked another miracle. He knew that I didn't want to be a mom. He's, he's got me. Like I knew he got me. And, um, my son was obviously resuscitated and he was very much alive. And I, I didn't know how to manage those emotions because I wasn't happy, but everybody thought that I needed to be happy. And everybody was, aren't you so happy? He's alive and he's amazing. And, and I was like, I'm not like, and I, and so like, I, hopefully I'll get to the point where I don't cry when I tell this, because like, I still have so much shame and guilt over it because, uh, you know, that's just a a really sick and, um, tragic feeling to feel when your first kid's born. So he, uh, he was airlifted to another hospital in like the two towns over from us. And I didn't get to hold him. I didn't get to see him. The only time I saw him is when they wheeled him and he was airlifted to that other hospital. And so I'm in the hospital for a week and I'm just engulfed in postpartum. Like it hit me the moment that I didn't hear those cries. I was engulfed in all of this depression. I, I just wanted to get the fuck out of the hospital and go back to drinking. Like I knew if I could get out of this hospital and if I could go and have a drink, everything was going to be fine. Everything was going to be okay. So I didn't, um, 
I didn't seek any sort of help for postpartum. I didn't do any of those. I just, you know, kind of powered through it. And that's kind of been a theme with my life. I just, I just ran, 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 kept myself busy, 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 busy. So I don't have to feel. And, uh, it just came to a screeching halt. I think when he was about three years old, my husband, um, dropped him off at daycare. And when he went to drop him off, I pulled my husband's gun and, Thank God I hadn't uh, taken him up on those uh, gun lessons because I didn't know how to work the gun. And so that's the only reason that I did not shoot myself in the head um, because I didn't know how. But I told my husband what I had done. And so he took me to the hospital. So I had another inpatient stay. And and I was grateful for that because it was like a little break from reality. Yeah, you didn't yeah, have yeah. to be the mom anymore. Like, yeah. okay, this this is a resort. This is going to be great. And so, yeah. and as soon as I got out, I just figured that the drinking was not my problem. It was the fact that I wasn't on the right cocktails of pharmaceuticals. So if I could get on the right cocktails of pharmaceuticals, I'll be fine. No, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Not yeah. so much. And I, I think that's a pretty, you know, it's funny. I relate to so many of the feelings that you're talking about, you know, at a different level. I was sober when my, my twins were born, but just the feeling of the feeling that you had of like over the first couple of years, I was like, and I would start to f- hit these like bouts of depression and I would really just dream about going impatient like, and just like, just like a break, just like take me and people, I, I would hear, you know, working in the, in the field, I'd hear people talking about like, Oh, you know, I don't want to go for 30 days. And I am think I would give anything to go for 30 days right now. Anything like, please out therapy, the shit out of me, do whatever you got to do. I will show up to every session, just like someone help, <laughs> you know? And I, uh, and I just don't think that that's discussed enough because just that that pressure that we as moms put on ourselves and especially growing up with dysfunction in our past we feel like we are responsible to to make it right and so like we're going to make a better life for our kids and and we have the opportunity and so when you can't live up to that standard no matter how hard you try that's exactly when that disease swoops in and you can be sober as a judge and that disease will swoop in whether you take a drink or a pill or anything. You can be stone cold sober and you are engulfed in that misery and just depression and shame. It's just, and you can't explain it. It's like, and well, you feel, you feel terrible about it because it's, it's not the feeling you're supposed to have. And I think that's, that's the big thing is like, it's not what you're supposed to be feeling. And it's why, you know, I talk about, um, you know, I got sober when I was 19 years old, right? So I had, I had a long time to, I had a lot of practice and I used to go to the uh, Scottsdale Alano club when I lived in Arizona. And, uh, I used, and I had a long time to like get those habits in place and like this routine. And when I had children, I changed. And so I call it postpartum, my postpartum sobriety, because my post, my postpartum sobriety, my sobriety is not the same. Cause when you are the last person on the call sheet, <laughs> Like you are, you matter, you know, like you might as well be the janitor of this, you know, like pretty much the, the, so, you know, I used to joke, like my dog eats before I do. And it's, there's this just feeling of like, I'm supposed to be 
in love with my children and loving this experience. And I'm so lucky and I'm so this, and I'm so grateful. And like, why do I feel like running away? Why like getting in my car and driving for as far and as long as this engine could. And that's, you know, and then you're like, go, what kind of mom thinks that that's that feeling. And so, but I think I do not know any mom that hasn't felt that way. Right. And I feel like the more mothers step into that truth and disclose the fact that we hate our lives more often than not. Like, I'm sorry, that's a God honest truth. So it's, you know, but it's normal. It is normal. Motherhood and parenting is the hardest fucking shit ever. Like, I didn't want to be a stay at home mom simply because going to work was a million times easier than sitting at home with a freaking kid. So when I had my daughter and I found out that I had cancer, I... I couldn't work anymore because I had to do all of this cancer bullshit. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. How did you find out you had cancer? So take us through that. Like what you, so you had your, you have your daughter, you have your second baby and your husband is deployed. Yeah. So what, what's the, which order did that go in? So right before we found out that my husband was going to be deployed to Afghanistan, I was like, oh shit, I'm going to be solely responsible for my son. I, nobody's going to be able to pick him up if I forget. Like I was like, oh, I can't do this. And so I immediately thought, well, if I get pregnant, then I can be sober and I can be okay. And so we had two weeks to get pregnant before he left. I had to take my IUD out and we tried. And so like, I don't know, I'm just a moron in terms of pregnancy (laughs) because like I thought like I was going to know that I was pregnant within like a week after we had done it. And so like, as soon as that pee stick didn't show up and say that it was positive. So I was like, oh, I'm not pregnant. It didn't work. So like game on, I started drinking again. And so what was so weird is that I... Like I was started to throw up like each morning and I just thought like, oh, I'm hung over. Like, uh, like I'm hung over. No, bitch. You had morning sickness. Like you're so stupid. <laughs> so, like, hey, hey, one time I, I got pregnant once and while I was using and um I was using heroin and I thought I was dope sick. And so I like I did the amount of drugs I did to try to get rid of dope sickness that was actually morning sickness made the pregnancy non-viable. That's how much I was like, (laughs) just, I thought, you know, who knows, right? It's just insane to me because I don't even know. So anyways, I like my boobs 
started getting like huge. Like I already have big boobs as it is, but like they were huge and they were like I had those like blue veins and I was like, oh, what the oh, hell is oh, that? The veins. <laughs> I about that. I, oh, I saw the veins. I was like, oh shit. Oh, I forgot oh, about that. Right? And like that's oh, a telltale sign. Yeah. So like oh yeah. And they hurt Re- so bad, like so oh, so bad. So like terrible. I ended up going to the doctor and like I was 17 weeks pregnant when I found out. Like girlfriend. Oh my God. Oh mm-hmm. my God. Yeah. So anyways, <laughs> I uh but oh, like God. as soon as I found out that I was having a girl, like I'm like, oh shit. Like this girl is gonna look up to me. Like nobody should look up to me as the woman that they want to be like, no, 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 no. Like I was okay. Like screwing up a boy. Cause like, whatever his like wife will fix him like some shit, but like, <laughs> I, I can't oh do so like my oh husband God. was so, so happy. Like he wanted a girl, he wanted a girl yeah. like, from the get go. And so, um, he came home right before she was delivered. She was born the day after my 30th birthday. So I was on the 29th and she was on the 30th. So I had that bonding and I, I loved her. Like I loved her like so, so much. And I had never experienced that like ever. So like, I'm like, Oh, now I get what these bitches are talking about. Like (laughs) I get it. I get it. Because I just didn't understand. Like when these women were like pregnant, it's just when you hold them. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I just thought I was incapable of it. And so like I had her and I had that bonding and I was able to sit in the hospital alone with her. And it was just like amazing. And I didn't have any sort of postpartum with her whatsoever. And I was like, okay, this is going to be good. Like I can be yeah, this yeah, mom. Yeah. I get a redo. This is going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah. And um, then I found out I had kidney cancer. How so, did they find that? Okay. So when I was pregnant, I had like this kind of nagging sort of pain in my the left kind of bottom of my back. But like when you're pregnant and you complain of back, your back hurting, <laughs> yeah. like no, there's sure. at all. Sure. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, anything that hurts, they're like, uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, but after when I was my six week appointment, the follow-up, I was like, dude, it's still, there's something going on. And so I said, you need to, I need to have a scan. Like I know my body, I know it well. And so come to find out there was a tumor double the size of my kidney. And if I, I swear, and if I would not have advocated for that. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it. Who knows? Like it could have gone on for forever. So like, I didn't have to do any sort of um, chemo or any of that, but I hadn't even recovered from my C-section at all. And so they went in and they're like, we need to get this out like ASAP. And so they went out and they took my entire left kidney. So like I'm sitting in the hospital recovering from having kidney cancer, having a C-section. And I'm just like, my mind immediately went back to the trauma that I experienced with my son, like immediate. Cause I'm like, I can't do this again. Like, are you, I was so pissed off at God, like so pissed. Like, are you serious, dude? Like I'm trying to do the deal. Like I'm trying to be the woman that you want me to be. And you're going to throw this shit at me. So, um, but if you do get cancer, you get prescribed really good drugs. That's the bonus with it. But uh, I I quickly realized, again, that Percocets were 
my new love again because I had quit them before and once they were introduced again. So my oncologist became my drug dealer. So I was taking those Percocets for four and a half years. They prescribed me 120 pills each and every month for four and a half years. I have a question about that. So you get kidney cancer. They remove the kidney and the tumor. You no longer have cancer. At all. So what's the Percocet for? Okay. Just, 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 just make sure I'm following. I'm Everybody is no, no doctor should have been okay prescribing those Percocets the way that he was prescribing. I'm just confused. Cause like, it's like at that point you don't have cancer, right? I didn't have anything, you know, I right. still <laughs> had a little bit of pain afterwards and I think yeah, that's yeah, normal, yeah. but yeah. there's no, I mean, way. once you heal like yeah. four years, like there's no cancer at, at all. What's okay. Okay. I'm just making sure I'm following. Yeah. But you know, the thing is, is that I looked good. And so I didn't look like a drug addict. Right. 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 So like nobody was going to believe like, oh, she's here because she's a drug addict. So like I made sure that I looked amazing and I was properly dressed. And so like I went to any and every lengths to, to hide my disease because I needed them. We do. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. So you get to a point where you want to kill yourself again. What, how long after, so that's, you're taking Percocets for four years. How, what takes you to that point? So when I started taking the Percocets the way that I was taking them, um, I became somebody who I did not know. I, I had an affair on my husband. My husband had found out and we, we ended up trying to, you know, sort of make it work. And so our solution was to buy this big, beautiful house in this um, prestigious neighborhood. And so like, if he bought me this house, I was going to be happy and we'd have everything they wanted. And so we bought this house in November of 2016. And in December of 2016, my husband came home and he said that he wanted to buy, um, he wanted to go get a Christmas tree. Like he's like Clark Griswold. He loves Christmas, like loves it. And so I've been drinking all day. And as soon as he said, we're going to go get the Christmas tree. I was like, no, I cannot put on this happy face. I cannot be this joyful mother that you expect. And so uh, he said, okay, well, we're going to go anyway. So he put the kiddos in the truck. And um, unbeknownst to him, when he put the kids in the truck, um, I had taken an entire bottle of Seroquel and the truck wouldn't start. And so he came back in the house and he found me lifeless and basically dead. And so he had to call the ambulance and I was narcan and I was saved. And uh, so you know, obviously when I woke up in the hospital, I, I lied. Like I didn't mean to kill myself. It was, I don't know what was happening. So I, I just made all of these excuses. And, uh, you know, and as soon as I got out of the hospital, um, my husband was like, we can't discuss this. We are not going to say that you killed yourself. We're, we're just going to move on and everything's going to be fine. Cause like he had so much shit on his plate. I mean, he was managing the house. He was working full time. He's in the air force. Like he was doing so much. Like he couldn't juggle anymore. He just couldn't. And, uh, so like 2017 was another shit show. I got another DUI, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then in 2018 in March, I had gotten in another hit and run. And the problem with this hit and run is the dude filmed me 
Like he has his like cell phone and he was like filming me. Like, I was crazy because he like cut me off and I would decide like something like clicked in my brain. I was like, bitch, I'm going to teach you a lesson. You do not cut off a woman. So like I chased his ass down and um, anyways, but he took that film evidence to the police and I don't know why or how I had the knowledge to not go home. Like I knew immediately I, I could not go home that night at all whatsoever. Like I called my girlfriend. I was like, listen, bitch, you need to hide me, hide me, hide me, hide me. And so like, those are the ride or die friends. Right. So she's like, <laughs> why? she's like, okay, come over. So like, she like hid my car and all of this. And so like, I just turned off my phone. I didn't answer my husband. Like he was blowing it up. And so in the morning, I ended up calling him back. Totally, like, totally. Okay, They'll help you bury the body. Blah, blah, blah. And so he's like, you need to come home because the police are coming here at 10 a.m. You need to meet them and explain, like, what the hell happened. And so I did. And um, the girlfriend who had hid me, she said, you, you should go to AA before all of this transpires because it'll look good. So go and find out, like, how they do the court slips. So I was like, okay. So like I went and that was like really my only intention. I just wanted to like find out how to get these little things signed, even though I didn't have anything to sign. But like I took an Uber to that meeting and I met who is like, she's my saving angel. Like I love her to pieces. She's still, she's now my sponsor. And like, she just took me under her wing and like, we've been inseparable like ever since she's, and I never, ever, ever wanted to walk into the rooms. I would rather kill myself than walk into the rooms. I was not going to be those people. Like, I was going to do all the therapy and all that other shit, but I was not going to give AA a shot. I was not going to. And yeah. come to find out, that was the yeah. only 100%. thing that worked to get me sober. Nothing else. I had tried transcranial magnetic stimulation, hypnosis. Like I tried all of it. And AA has been the only thing that has worked for me ever. I, I, I so relate to that. And it's so funny too, because I was like, these cult God loving, whatever people like you're hot. Like I am not doing this. And also I went in there and it was like, we're talking about God. I'm like, you do realize I have a serious drug and alcohol problem. And like, you're talking, you're like reading these steps. Like it's like, I'm like, what do you, you want to like, is this pray the gay away? Like what's happening here? You know, like, I'm just not, this is not, what is this? This is the dumbest shit I've ever seen. And Yet I had tried absolutely everything else. And it wasn't like, and I relapsed a whole time. I went to a lot of treatment centers and relapsed. And what was interesting is like, I got to the place where like, literally I was like, okay, nothing is working. And my life is so shitty. And these people are nice. They're fun. They're funny. And it seems to be working for them. And it, I'm just going to do it. And so... Literally, it wasn't until I was like, okay, like that surrender of like, okay, I'll do it your way. What do I have to lose? Nothing. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, nothing to lose here. Like I'm not going to, by doing it and just that change. And it's so, you know, people can get sober a lot of different ways. I know they can. And I always say like, look, I'm not, you know, I am, I have, I don't get a toaster for bringing people to AA. Like right. I don't care. You do what you, you know, whatever way you get sober yeah. is fine. 
or you or not even sober, just like you get your shit together is happy. But here's my experience. My experience is that if you have struggled the way I've struggled and you're able to put like in that you're able to put aside the stuff that bothers you about AA and just take what you take, what works it's an incredible experience and it's incredible community and you can go anywhere in the world and not and only that to a room it's free right it's, it's free, free. <laughs> like do you know how much totally. money like oh, i had spent I trying oh. to get sober like my insurance they oh, yeah. despise me I mean, I can't even, I'm they're sure like, they just pull my charts. I'm like this bitch again. They're, pay, they're, like, they're paying AA now. For sure. I mean, <laughs> it, it's just so crazy to me, but you know. So that's I, June 10th of 2018? That was so March, uh, March 9th is when I took the Uber to the AA meeting. And then uh, June 10th is AA's Founders Day. And so somebody had texted me, happy Founders Day. And I don't know what happened, but I immediately thought, you know, I'm going to have the same birth date as Dr. Bob. And I was like, okay. So I just drank three beers and I figured I didn't get drunk. I didn't end up in jail. I don't need to tell anybody. It doesn't even count. Right. Okay. And I... Woke up on June 26th with the inability to speak, my inability to read, my inability to write. So, so when let me let me just back up on this timeline here. So you go March 9th to the AA meeting. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is eight 2018, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Is do you get sober? I do. Yep. Okay. I was sober. So you, yeah. So you you were sober from n- March 19th. March starting. 9th. Yeah. I I'm sorry, March 9th. I top I stopped taking everything that okay. immediately day. Okay. So you stopped doing that. Did you catch a case on the hit and run? I ended up just, I think I got a couple points on my license, but who doesn't? (laughs) So March 9th. Okay. So you you get sober that day and then you're sober until June 10th when you, okay, got it. So you're sober until June 10th when you decide to drink three beers. Yeah. Okay. And then you're because alcoholism, that's why. Right. And then, so take, so June 10th to June 26th, you're drinking? No, not at all. I only drank those three beers. Nothing oh, and else. then you're fine. Nothing. Okay. So June 10th, three beers, June 11th through June 25th, you're sober. June 26th of 2018. Now, do you, do you wake up and you can't talk? So it ended up, it started on June 25th. So I, I say this prayer with my daughter every single night. And the only thing that I could get out of my mouth was dear heavenly father. And then nothing would come out. And you were like trying to talk. I knew what I wanted to say. Yeah. Nothing. And so I immediately went back to who I was when I was drinking. I was like, say nothing, go to bed (laughs) and you're you're not going to get in trouble because I didn't know what the fuck was happening to me. Right. 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 I'm like, I didn't take anything. I'm sober. Like, what is happening? And so I just said nothing. Like my husband went up is like, what are you doing? Cause my daughter was like, mom, mom, mom. And I was like, bitch, shut up. Cause I don't want to deal with your dad. I don't want to deal with him. So, uh, I just went to bed. And then that, um, the next morning on June 26th, my husband like messaged me on Facebook messenger and I couldn't put together any words 
Like I knew what I wanted to say, but I couldn't text properly. I couldn't speak. I'm trying to like get my kids food and like yeah, I just yeah, yeah. hug like a big Red Bull. I was like, maybe I need energy. Like yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. know. And so yeah, like as a mom, I, this stuff happens to me all. The, I forgot my therapist name the other day and like literally couldn't figure out, like could not figure out who my therapist. You know, so and this was like without a stroke and sober. So I can understand being like, maybe I just have mom brain. Right. I just was like, I don't understand. And I was panicking in my head, but I had to like keep it together because I'm brand new. I'm newly sober. My kids are starting to trust me. And here I am. I'm like, I'm a shit show. (laughs) And so I'm I'm trying to pretend like everything is fine. Totally. So my husband ended up calling one of my girlfriends and was like, you need to call and check on Danielle because like, I don't know what's happening. She's not giving me any information. And so my girlfriend called and I couldn't talked to. I was like, uh, uh, no, I was like making all these weird noises and yeah. she's um, a pharmacist. So she knew like the signs of a stroke. So she called the ambulance. She did not tell me she was calling them. It's a good thing. Cause my ass yeah, yeah, locked yeah. the door. And so, uh, they like bust through my door, the ambulance, the freaking cops. And I'm like, dude, I'm sober. And I have fucking cops in my house uh-huh. again, like for uh-huh. real. So they basically are like, you, um, we think that you're having a stroke. And so like, they took me off. How old are you? 34. 34. 34 at the time. And so they took me to the the hospital. The cops had to stay with my kids until my husband had gotten home. And like, it was such a fiasco. And so I, you know, I realized what absolute humility actually felt like. Because I couldn't do anything for myself, nothing, because I I was so helpless. And so like, I had to fully surrender because I had to rely on other people. I had to rely on God. That was all I had going for me, man. Nothing. So you, you get in the, you get in the ambulance, right? At this point, you can't, you can't speak, right? Nope. Okay. You can't speak. Can you write things? You like, you probably can't write. Okay. You can't speak. You can't write. Um, you get in the ambulance, you go to the hospital. So what went next? So they, uh, basically took me in and I had to have a CT and it was such a fiasco. They were doing like blood work, but I was so pissed cause they were hitting the, they were drawing blood improperly. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> that's the worst. That's the worst. Yeah. So mad. And so I just had to like suck it up and just let them do whatever they needed to do. And so the neurologist came and he was so good looking, by the way, Um, (laughs) even though I had a stroke, I was like, damn, okay, whatever you say, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Whatever. And I was such a dreamy. I know for real. So anyways, he came and he was like, you know, you, you suffered a stroke and, um, more than likely you are not going to get your ability to speak and your ability to write and your ability to read. So it might come back with small little portions. So, um, just be prepared. And I was like, just be prepared. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Uh Yeah. Like, like, I'm sorry. I I was, so you're sitting in a, you're sitting in the hospital bed. Mm -hmm. He comes in, you can't talk, speak, Mm -hmm. write, read. You can't read, right? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. But you can understand what he's yeah, saying. I can understand. I, I know yeah. what I want to say back to him. I know everything. I'm so yeah. aware. So, okay. So he says this to you and you're just like crying, I'm assuming. And oh, just like, yeah. And is anyone in the hospital with you? My husband was with there. He was. He was. Okay. So he's freaking out. Yeah. Um, 
how long are you sitting? So like that happens. So what do they do for you? There, there's nothing that they really can do. So, but I was able to get myself dressed and I was able to, I didn't lose any of that ability. I have a little, I had a little droop on my face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was okay. the only sort of deficit that I had. And so they, they wanted to, for me to do PT at some like little facility or whatever, but I didn't have those deficits. So I didn't qualify to have those. And so I'm thinking to myself, did they send you home? So they wanted to send me home. And I was like, first of all, I'm newly sober and none of these yeah, yeah, yeah. fuckers know at all. And I'm right. just like, I don't even know. Tell them. I like, I don't know if we know who I am. And so um, yeah. the girlfriend who had hid me um, that one time, she offered to have me stay at her house. And that was the biggest gift that I had ever been given. So I was able to stay at her house for an entire week and kind of like sort my life kind of out. And I ended up going to a speech therapist and that speech therapist was amazing. She said, you know, the best possible ability for you to get your speech back is to start writing, like not pen and paper, but like typing. And so I just started like my brain was firing on all cylinders because I couldn't talk. So like I had all these thoughts. So I just like wrote, wrote, wrote. And um, my Ah, So you could type, you could see the letter. Mm -hmm. Oh, how, uh, and you could, but could you, so if you could see the letter and, but you couldn't read, but you could type a word. So any, so after a week, my ability to read and my ability to write came back, but the speech didn't come back until August, August 8th. And so I just wrote, 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 wrote. And, um, when my speech came back, I came out about my sobriety because I was okay. Like, hold on a sec. This is fucking <laughs> insane. Okay, mm-hmm. wait a minute. So you have this stroke, right? You have this stroke June twenty sixth, and then until August, you're mute. Mute. You're mute. So, like, if this is this is like the most like universe, God, whatever you want to call right? it. Because here's the whole thing when you go to AA and they're like, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. You know, all you can do is listen, right? You can't, they don't want you. They're like, everything that comes out of your mouth is bullshit and, and excuses. So shut up and listen for the first time in your life. So you had to be fucking mute <laughs> and, and you could type yep. for until August, August. And I wow. truly believe like that stroke was the best thing that had ever happened to me in my entire life. God knew to orchestrate all of this. I had just gotten into A. That's exactly where I needed to be all along. And I thought that I knew it all. So I was going to speak my yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Time. Uh-huh. And as soon as the stroke happened, I had to surrender. Yeah. To listen. Yeah. And I had to ask for help because oh I couldn't lie. It's like... That's the most, and like, I can see with your personality. When's your birthday? Mm-hmm. December 29th. <gasps> oh, Capricorn. I'm December 27th. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I feel you girl. Okay. So, so it, like full on fire, you know, just like you're, an, I get this. I know what's up and you. <laughs> You're mute. I can't even imagine. I literally can't even imagine if I was, that would be the most frustrating and perfect thing in the whole world because you just need to like shut up and listen. Like there's no other way. 
there's no, no other, other way that you're going to oh my god and 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 asking for help and then the speech therapist and the whole thing and with your kids i mean that's incredible i think obviously not good to have a stroke right i mean that that goes without saying but the the experience that you got is just unbelievable and the miracle of getting it back i mean you would never know that you had a stroke so on august 8th you said it was on august 8th of 2008 how does the speech come back one word you know a flood how does that work I believe it just came back like a flood. I remember I had left the speech therapist office and I drove directly to the hospital where I was at. And there was this stroke coordinator, which she was so amazing. I loved her. And she just, she like prayed with me. She was so cute. And I just, I loved her. So I drove right back to that hospital after I had started talking in the speech therapist office. And I I told that stroke coordinator, I'm an alcoholic. That's there's a reason I had this stroke. I had I treated my body horribly and all of this. So I'm just like vomiting and this yeah. is like, what the hell? Okay, I'm happy for you. Like, what? <laughs> so crazy. I'm talking. Well, you had like, so much to say, I'm sure. So much. It was just like, and everybody at my meeting house hated me because I would not shut up. (laughs) It was like, well, the problem is I just thought that I didn't know if I was going to have another stroke. So I needed to say whatever the was on my mind because I didn't know if I was going to have another one. Yeah. 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 And I had had so much fear. It was just crazy. So you say a prayer to God to get your abilities back within. And then how long I mean, are you probably saying that prayer every day, right? Yeah. It's, <laughs> so that prayer that I said in the hospital after that neurologist told me that I'm not going to get my speech, I, I basically said, listen, God, like if you give me my speech, I will spend the rest of my life helping others. The rest. And I had never made any sort of promise or vow to God like ever because I knew I wasn't accountable at all. And so... I have done that like since then. And I, I'm so passionate about it because like if a drunk, like my ass can get sober, anybody can like anybody, because I truly with all of my heart believe that it was impossible for me, like impossible. Cause my, my heart was racing uncontrollably. My brain wasn't functioning properly. And so like that stroke healed me because the doctors had to actually take a look at the fact that they couldn't throw a prescription at me. They had to get to the root of the problem. And it's just amazing to me because, you know, I just feel like so much validation because I knew that there was something going yeah. on, but I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to okay. explain it to somebody. They're just like, okay, Danielle. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and they told you it was an absolute impossibility that you were going to be able to speak again. Yep. Impossibility. Nothing like, nothing like telling us it's impossible to tell an alcoholic Capricorn it's impossible to make us get it done. <laughs> and so did, and with the heart, was that, did that play into the stroke? The heart Absol- defect? Yeah, absolutely. So I ended up having in sobriety two heart ablations. So my heart, I found out, was beating through the bottom up. And it had been doing that my entire life. So like my my brain and my body thought like I was going to have a, a heart attack 
every single day. So it was wow. no wonder I was in always this kind of yeah. fight or fight mode because wow. my body thought. And so like my biggest lesson to anybody and everybody is be your own advocate. Yeah. You yeah, yeah. know your body. And I don't give a shit what these doctors say or they don't say. You know your body and you know if there's something wrong. So nobody's going to advocate for yourself. They're just not. Yep. Yep. You just it's need so to. True. It's crazy to me. So when they did those ablations and it, oh. did you notice a huge difference? Night. And there's no way I would have been able to have this conversation with you because my heart was racing uncontrollably. So anytime I would talk, like my, um, my voice, it would be like through the roof because I was, I was afraid it wasn't going to, yeah, I was afraid it wasn't going to come out and it wasn't going to come out properly. So like, I just tried so hard and then I just ended up like shutting down. But after the second heart ablation, it, it was like a game changer. I can drive on the freeway without any sort of anxiety. Like I am just like, okay, bing, bing, bong. It's just, it's, an absolute miracle. Truly. Wow. That's incredible. And, and so you have been sober. So your sobriety, what's your sobriety date? The 10th or the 11th? 11th, June 11th. Awesome. And, uh, what, since, since you've been sober, what, you know, what has changed in your world? What are you doing now? Oh my gosh. It's, it's so amazing because I, I didn't anticipate a whole lot of change happening in my life because I didn't lose anything. I had my husband, I had my kids, I had the house, I had the cars, I had everything, but I just didn't know who I was and I didn't have any sort of purpose. So I, I started writing in these sobriety groups, um, on Facebook and I just wrote this like random sort of daily devotional because I would get inspired by several different devotionals that I had read. And I did it simply out of sheer necessity because it helped me get all my thoughts out and helped me kind of get uh, a routine in the morning. And so I started doing this, started doing this. And then all of a sudden it kind of became a thing. And then people started to look forward to it. And so I felt like, okay, well, I have some sort of purpose now. So before that I didn't have anything. And so I ended up writing a book <laughs> this girl who said that I couldn't have anything. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I couldn't do yeah. like what I'm publishing a book. What? It's amazing. Like, I would never imagine any of this possible. And I also work in a treatment center. I facilitate groups and I love that because I see the desperation and the hopelessness and yeah. these newcomers eyes. And I'm just like, yep. I get it, man. Like I hated my first year of sobriety. Like I hated it every (laughs) single day of that first year. Like I felt like I was wearing like jeans that just got out of the dryer and they're like two sizes too small and like they could fit, but I'm just like, I can't can breathe. It's yeah. like that man in a little coat. It was like so <laughs> miserable. So I'm like, oh my God. It's so terrible. But, um, mm. you know, the joy and, and the happiness and the excitement and the purpose that I have in my life today, that's all I wanted. I don't want anything else. I just wanted to wake up and be happy that I actually woke up. Yeah. Not not sentenced to another day of life. Yeah. And that's, that's how I lived for 22 years, day in and day out. And I just like muscled through it, but you know, that stroke and the cancer, it really has shown me that, you know, tomorrow's not promised. It is not promised. 
and being open with my kids about my sobriety and making sure that they don't feel like this is some dirty, shameful secret. Yeah. That's been such a gift. You know, they, yeah. they go to meetings with me. They, you know, <laughs> my daughter at her kindergarten, like first day of kindergarten, she's like, my mom is sober. <laughs> so proud and so like the little kindergarten teacher she's like well your daughter said that you're sober and I'm like "Mm, she's not wrong (laughs) like I wear like sober shirts like pick my kids up and I live in this like kind of posh Stepford wife ish and there are a bunch of drunks and pill poppers and like whatever (laughs) I'm like I'm not judging you but if you need a solution I got totally but totally it's amazing I love my life like I love 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 it and and I truly like with all of my heart I thought that I was incapable of actually enjoying life I really did yeah it's uh it's just an incredible incredible story and it's it's exactly I hear the same story over and over again and it was like kind of the thing that drew me made me stick around in the program which was like okay I don't really get it I don't really get what's going on how this works or any of this, why it works. I I just don't understand. Literally, like I literally don't understand how to do the steps. I don't understand what's happening. But one thing I could say is like all these people whose stories are like mine, whose misery has been like mine, they have somehow, like they're talking in a way I'm like, really? Like, is that, and it doesn't feel... And I feel like, you know, when, when we can talk about Popov and we can talk about pill popping and floozy and all this shit, and I'm like, yeah, girl, did you sleep with them? No. Like, oh, that's amazing. Um, how did, like, I, I'm a dumbass. I didn't sleep with them. Like, you know, whatever. You know what I mean? I'm like, damn, did she get all that shit for free? Um, but, but, but then like, so you get it, right? We get it. And then to get to this place of like, yeah, I enjoy motherhood. I enjoy these things. Like my, my view has changed. I'm proud of, I'm proud of what I've come through. And, you know, I think, I think disease, like disease, particularly cancer, I don't know. I don't know so much about a stroke, but particularly cancer, which is a, you know, cancer is your own cells, your own cells basically replicate, you know, bad, bad coding, right? Replicating and with bad coding, right? And so it's your own cells misfiring, so to speak, and then continuing to misfire. And to me, it's so symbolic, like in that it's your own body, it's your own body creating this issue. It's, it's this dysfunction and, and, and it builds, right? It's like this, it continues to replicate. And I feel like that's so much of what my alcoholism did, right? It was my own brain. It was my, it was, or they were organic thoughts that I had and they just replicated over and over and over and over again until I became this monster, you know, and the, and the alcoholism that felt, it, it feels like a cancer. It's you, it's yourselves, but they are out of control. They're, you know, they're going as fast as you can and you can't remove it. You can't, you know, it's like, and having that, you know, symbol of that for you that, and that thank God was able to be removed, you know, right? Like in this case, it was, it worked out well. It's just, you know, it reminds me so much of like the fact what we are, what we think about creates disease in our body. How that the feelings, the emotions, it creates disease in our body. That is real. It's not some hippy dippy bullshit, whatever. It's, it really does create disease in our body. And you are absolutely right. And I don't, I cannot stress that 
fact, and it is a fact. So nobody in my family has had any of the health issues that I have had. Nobody. It's not this, you know, I come from this cancerous side. Right, of the family. right, 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 like right. Nobody has had anything. And so, you know, secrets and shame manifest their body and they kept me physically, emotionally, and spiritually sick, like sick, Literally. sick, sick. And, I, and I'm so grateful the fact because I have the scientific and medical proof to kind of side actually my beliefs because you cannot deny my medical history. You just can't. Right. It's there. It's there. And, and, and I feel like with people like us where we're like more, 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 go, go, go. Like I did the same thing. I ran, I, I was as busy as humanly possible. I still kind of do that. And, you know, we stuff it down. Like you talk about power through, like I did so much powering through and powering through is putting it away somewhere deep, 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 deep. And then, you know, showing up for whatever it is. And the fact that you cannot outrun, <laughs> like you can't outrun, believe me, we tried. Right. And, and when you do that, when you stuff those feelings, when you, that shame you're talking about, when you, when you put it down and power through, you're not powering through, you're building, you're, you're putting it down for later. And I think that's, that was such an important piece for me to realize is like, okay, I'm not doing myself any favors. I'm not avoiding this pain. I'm just postponing it and making yep. it worse. So it's, 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 I'm, I'm paying interest on my pain. When it comes back to me, it's going to be more expensive than it was to deal with it in the first place. So now I, I know that and now when I, when that hits me, I'm like, okay, what do I need to do? Because I don't want to pay interest on my pain anymore. Right. Oh, I love that. Pay interest on my pain. Yeah. It's so true. You know, and it's kind of goes back to the whole cancer thing because it just grows and it grows and it grows and yep. it grows and you cannot control how it grows. It just does. It's that right. organic right. Kind of manifestation that is happening yeah. and you cannot deal with it, but it'll come back in some other oh. way. You will be forced. Uh, oh, yeah. I forget what the situation was. There was something that was going on with me. I was, oh, I was really, really like just, there was so much stress in my life. I was depressed. Like all this stuff was going on. I was powering through and my, and my back went out and it completely went out and it forced me to slow down. It forced me all these things. And like, it so much pain. And I remember talking to my therapist and she's like, you don't pay attention. You're not paying attention to your body. You've, you've left your body. You've disassociated and removed your head from your body for so long that your body has to be in pain for you not to be emotionally numb. Yep. Absolutely. And you know, Which I, sucks. Right? And, and you I'm know, like, okay, okay. I'm listening. I'm listening. That's exactly because I don't listen period unless I am forced to. So right. like the only way that I am able to kind of have a wake up call is in hospitals. Like how ridiculous is that? <laughs> like that's it. the only time. Oh, like, I get it. Like, Oh, I probably oh. should have listened. I probably should have slowed down. So like Nowadays, like I don't give a shit saying that I don't want to go to some stupid ass party, some stupid family event. Like I'm tired. I don't want to spend my energy dealing with you. So my ass going to take a nap. Bye. It's like, I don't have to do those things anymore because I've survived way too much shit to, to deal with that. No. Right. Right. You want to create, you know, the best thing I've been hearing is like create a life that you don't feel the need to escape from. Right. You know, like. I didn't know that we could do that. I didn't know that we could do that. Well, I, you are just 
absolutely incredible. And I'm so, so grateful that you got the uh, ability to speak and write back so that you can tell your story and that you are giving back and all, all everything and that your kids get their mom back and all of it. It's an incredible, incredible story. You're an incredible woman. And so, so grateful that you were here to share it. Oh, I'm so, so happy. This was so fun. I've done like so several fun. of these and I'm just like, I love my Capricorns. I love them so much. <laughs> so much. So me. much. God, yeah. Nice. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. I love it. The I love intense, it. We're just intense, man. We're just, it's like, it's all there. Yeah. And you know, I, it's no wonder we became alcoholics because we don't do moderation with shit. Nothing. Zero moderation. And it, but it makes us good at the other stuff. So, right. You know, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Is, um, when is your book coming out? It is. There it is. Holy girl. Stroke of sobriety, the essential daily guy. Oh, it's a daily. It is. So it's a daily. So you write. Damn girl. That's amazing. Look at that thing. I know. It's so cool. So, uh, it is being published and it will be available exclusively on Amazon on 11, 11, 20. So November 11th. November 11th, 2020, go to Amazon. It's called Stroke of Sobriety by Danielle Gregorich. You got it. I got it. Woo! Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll be buying that and I will be checking it out and uh, looking forward to reading it. Thank you. Awesome. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings, schedule, and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.